Hi, welcome to Titanium Talk. My name is Jason Neen and I have with me Brenton. Brenton House. Hi, hey, Brenton. Jason. How you doing? I'm doing great. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's been a while. Why don't you uh, tell us what you've been up to and what's happening now? All right. So as you may know, I've just recently joined Xway as a um, accelerator and Titanium as well as API developer evangelist. And so I'm excited digging into the community and program again and finding out uh, different ways that we can connect with developers in the community. So I've recently been at Interstate Batteries actually working with like API and mobile strategy and had some good experience working with some different teams. And I actually got to have some hands-on. Uh, some of our teams were using Xamarin. So I got to look at some of the different um, other mobile products and how people are using them and best practices. So I learned a lot and I'm excited to be jumping back in here. Right. So let's talk about some news. What's what's happening? We have uh, a couple different releases uh, that we can talk about, but I know just the most recent was we had a release candidate release of the 751 SDK that came out and we'll post the, uh, the link to that in the show notes. But also, I don't know if we've if we gotten a chance to talk on the show at all about we've gone GA with the 750 SDK as well. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, we'll put a couple of links in the show notes for the GA and the RC. There is a lot to go through. Um, 7.51 has got a few tickets that have been closed, a few issues that have been fixed and a, a new improvement. Uh, but 7.5.0 has got a huge amount of work that's been done uh, for iOS, Android and Windows. Um which is awesome. You know, there's, there's, there's support for new versions of Android. There's lots of new um, support for templates and list views. So you can use CommonJS modules in list views now, which is really, really cool. Uh, lots, of in, lots of new stuff on Windows. And it's, it's funny because when you look at the, I've sort of got the blog post open for 7.5.0 at the moment, and it's, there's, it's a big post. There's a lot of tickets there that have been done, especially on Android, lots of fixes and new improvements. You know, I love this about the update process that, Axway and Accelerator have done. You know, we get lots of little updates throughout the year. We get the big release, obviously, every year for you know the new versions of iOS and Android. And then there's lots of releases throughout the year, adding new improvements and fixing any bugs and addressing any tickets. But it was uh, it was interesting the other day that I saw. I can't remember where it was now, whether it was on Core or somewhere, about someone who was actually almost complaining about the number of updates <laughs> that there's too many. That that's funny, but um, I'm actually very glad. Uh, to see this this connection between the development team and the community, they've really been listening to getting feedback and integrating that feedback into the product right away. So I, for one, am, have been really happy as a developer and architect before working for Axway as well to get frequent updates, uh, to be able to get these new features and fixes faster. But what's really incredible too with this, if you look at, uh, and you'll see the release notes in the, in the in the notes here, but if you scroll down, you'll see um, like community credits and it's a crazy amount of people, uh, developers in the community that have been helping out um, submitting open because Titanium's open source be able to submit uh, fixes and enhancements and add features to the product. Um, and I think that's helped, helped actually be able to come out with faster updates as well. So kudos to, uh, the community as well for all the help that they've been able to do for all these releases. 
Yeah, that is awesome. I mean, one of the you know one of the great things about having it as open source is that you do get people forking it off and making changes and improvements, and not only in the core SDK, but also you know the modules that are open source, whether it's the accelerator ones, the Xway ones, or other ones that are that other developers have made open source. So it's great that the community gets behind it like that. Yeah. I- Every once in a while, in two, you see from the community people running into issues. Uh, I know they made it optional at first, but just being able to run a main thread and some of the JS core stuff is it, it gets you around a lot of the different problems and it helps. Uh, I think it's a good thing for us to be able to make it forced. And I know it's a, it's a more work. And as a developer, I understand the pain of of having to go through and change some stuff, but being able to adapt to, especially on the iOS features when Apple comes out with new features and they change stuff in their frameworks that we are able to adapt and take advantage of that. If, if we're not able to do that and use some of the new um, JavaScript um, features and also some of the iOS features, then that's less features that as a developer I can take advantage of or reliably in iOS. And I know I, I there's Android updates as well. And, but I know that some of this is a, addressing some of the issues with just trying to keep up with all the changes Apple's making as well. Exactly. So, I mean, some of the, the sort of, we again, the blog post, we'll put a link to Rene's and I'll put a link to my one in the show notes as well. But, you know, the, the sort of salient points from Rene's are things like running on the main thread is now going to be enforced in eight. And uh, I believe it's going to be enforced in eight. And, you know, one of the one of the tests developers could do now is just turning that property on in the TI app XML just to see what happens with their app. Uh, so there's a few good things in his blog post about running on the main thread. So trying that switched on and see what happens. JS core is being enforced in eight. So there's no other option other than to run with JS core. So it's a good time now to, to you know, enable that within the TI app XML and get used to how that works. Uh, getters and setters are going to be deprecated. So I think they're not sure when they're being removed. It's probably in that blog post somewhere. Uh, it looks like yeah, it looks like SDK nine they'll be completely removed. So for example, view dot get height and view dot set height, those getters and setters will be removed, and it will just be the properties that you need to um, need to use. And this is a weird one because I tend to just use the properties anyway. So yeah, I've I've typically used the properties as well. It's funny that we call it getters and setters because um, sometimes in some of the languages I've used the Getters and setters refers to the actual properties. So when you implement get and set on a property to enable properties. So we're not getting rid of the properties. We're actually just getting rid of the, the functions that, like when you say get height and set height. Uh, but yeah, the only time I typically use those is when, for some reason, there's other parameters that have to be passed in. But I think in this case, if, if there's other parameters that have to be passed in, then those are probably going to stay around because there's it's a more complex thing than just a get and set on a property. Uh, we'll have to look at that, but I've, I've almost always just used the, the property. So uh, it won't affect my code too much, but uh, we can um, also post some best practices uh, for when, when 8.0 starts coming out Yeah. for, Hey, here's a checklist of things. If you're going to do a code review on your app and look for these particular things, um, searching and finding, uh, and other things that that we can kind of help kind of 
help developers as they're going to upgrade to 8.0 because it'll be huge to be able to take advantage of the features and the, that I've heard are coming in 8.0. This is a big release. So you definitely want to be on board with 8 and any apps that you can that are still active and you want to be able to upgrade to that, take the time to be able to go through it. And th- some of these things are things you can go through and change now, like you're talking about the getters and setters and um, some of the other things. Those are things you can change in your code now. Yeah. Uh, some of the other features may be API changes that you can't deal with right now, but uh, take a look too in the release notes for 751 and 750, and always at the bottom too. There's always a deprecated APIs. Uh, take a look at those. A lot of times when you build, you may just ignore. A lot of times you get these little warnings at the bottom that mention, "Hey, this API is no longer used." But since your app built successfully, you may tend to ignore it. But you may want to take a look at those as well. If you see a, a lot of deprecated APIs that you're still using, you may want to take some time and go kind of uh, change those now before a big SDK, and they'll make your your upgrade process a lot easier. Yeah, and I think there's I need to check and put it in the show notes, but there's I, there's a, a new warning that comes up on certain apps that you're doing about global global variables. Um, so having like vars and things defined within, um, or not even vars, but having global variables defined in a common JS module or in the Alloy JS that is being deprecated and, and changing. I think it's being deprecated in eight. I need to double check that. But it's gonna it's gonna cause problems for people later on if they're doing stuff where, you know, they're um they're specifying a variable as a global basically to work across common JS and, you know, alloy.js and stuff like that. And I've seen that in a few apps uh, that we've inherited that I've been working on where you get those warnings as it fires up and then you discover that in some common JS file there's a, a global variable being declared. So the nice thing is titanium the SDK is warning people when it builds, which is quite good. And a lot of these things in, in 8 that are changing are being deprecated. There's some things that are being enforced like JS Core, but the getter and setter thing, or the set and get um, methods, are, is being deprecated. It's not being removed yet. So people's apps should still work, but obviously, and I hope and I think, they'll get, um, they'll get comments in the uh, console as it's building to say, you know, this is being removed in, S- in, in Titanium 9. The other interesting thing is... Just going down to the bottom of this screen, uh, the iOS minimum deployment target is now iOS 9. Um, it seems that most people target 9 and 10 and higher anyway, so it shouldn't impact too many people. But if anyone's out there targeting iOS 8, you should be aware that that's happening. And I can't imagine many people are targeting iOS 8 these days. I mean, I'm I'm tending to well, I'm tending to accept the defaults, but if I had a choice, I'd probably support iOS 10 and above. Um, if not 11 and above, because I think the adoption rate of 12 has been huge. And it's, you know, it's only very old. Well, I say very old, but it's only the older devices that can't really run 12. You know, 12 supports everything back to, I think, 5S. Yeah, it, it's crazy that the amount of backwards support that they've added in the, the recent SDKs or the for the, the iOS releases, like 12. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it's, I know it's 5S and... I can't remember on five, but that's that's pretty far back for them. Yeah, I'm just checking. It's uh, right. Yeah, so iPhone SE. So it's iPhone 10, obviously six, six plus, and later. Then the iPhone SE, the iPhone 5s, the iPad Pro. I'm guessing that's the first gen, and then all of the other, all of the later iPads. iPad fifth generation and later. iPad Mini two and later. So the Mini two was the first Retina iPad uh, Mini. So that one and the iPod Touch sixth generation. So they are going back quite a way. Um, 
And the, from the devices that I've tested it on, because I've got some old 5Ss here that the kids play around with and use as sort of almost like iPod touches because they're not really connected apart from Wi-Fi. Uh, just installing iOS 12 on those has been a huge difference. Yeah, because I know Apple announced that, I mean, there's a ways back, but when their battery, the health gets down, they do some software stuff to uh, basically slow your phone down a little bit to be able to make sure your battery lasts longer. I know they were talking about at some point that you could override that. I don't think, I haven't seen that live yet. Yeah, I mean, I had years ago, um, I say years ago, like it's 10 years ago, but it was only a few years ago. I had an iPhone 6, I think it was. Might have been the 6 Plus, uh, the 6S that it first happened to. But I would regularly go out for a walk, um, go out for a walk for an hour with the dog, you know, around the fields nearby. And my phone would die. And I'd be thinking... I'm sure my phone was fine. You know, it doesn't make any sense. It would not come back on again. It was completely dead. And the only way I could get it back was when I got back home and plugged it into power and turned it on, then it would stay on and it would just deplete normally throughout the rest of the day. But it would do this weird shutdown thing. And I ended up getting the device replaced uh, when I finally convinced Apple that it was a problem. But that sort of makes me, it, that, that relates almost to what they were saying because apparently what was going on with the battery thing is that if they didn't do the battery management that they were doing, which is to... Not all the time. I think this is where this is where it got lots of press coverage and lots of conspiracy theories kicked in uh, because people basically thought that what was happening was as soon as your battery reached a state where it couldn't provide the amount of power needed um, for a short burst, maybe you're playing a game that uses a lot of GPU or there's something that needs a lot of power in a short burst of time, that the that, that Apple were basically throttling the device constantly. So like your CPU was a, you know running at 70% or something all the time. And that was the conspiracy. So that everything was really slow. Everything was terrible. And that was forcing people to buy new devices because they just thought, oh, this is what happens. And that was the conspiracy theory. You know, Apple is slowing your devices down so you buy new, new um, phones. But what was happening was that it was only at certain points where the GPU or the, um, the CPU was putting the battery under stress that they were throttling at that point. So it wasn't all the time, it was at certain times. And so that was where the confusion was coming in. And that's why sometimes your phone might appear to be working great and sometimes it might be slower. But the only option was that if you didn't do that, your phone would actually shut down because the, the battery couldn't provide the amount of power. And I think they were shutting it down as a safety mechanism so that you know, they didn't get all kinds of issues with potential fires and things like that. That's my understanding of it anyway, from what I read. So they did add that feature Obviously, they added the automatic um, throttling. And then apparently there was some feature that I never saw, like you, but apparently a dialogue would come up and say, um, if your battery is sufficiently low, a dialogue would come up and say something about your phone is, is, is under battery management, but you could override it. There was like this little link that almost looked like a text link in the, in the text that came up that you could press, and then you could turn that off. But obviously, what could oh, happen okay. then? Is, yeah, but obviously, what could happen then is your phone could shut down. You know, just literally shut down a bit, yeah. like I, a bit like the problem I had. And I don't know if that was related. I don't know if that was a similar thing. Like that, my battery was faulty. It was trying to draw power to do something. It couldn't provide it, so it went into emergency shutdown mode, and that was why I couldn't power it back up again until I got back to to um, to tethered power, and then you know started up again. It was all very weird. But I've yeah, other than that, I've never really. I've, I don't think I've ever experienced a major slowdown apart from some old iPads, which when I did the iOS 12 upgrade did definitely improve things. Yeah, I think with the the 11 and then definitely with 12, Apple realized that they need to address some of the, the battery usage concerns and it's 
they've done a lot of stuff, especially in 12. So I know I'm curious what other people in the development community would like the policies they have, whether they're an enterprise company or on their own to uh, what iOS versions they target. I've always typically targeted latest minus one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Unless it's a small app that I know uh, the audience and I'll just target, especially if I want to try out some of the latest features, I'll just use uh, for the latest version if I'm doing iOS 12 features or something like that. But usually, like, I mean, the adoption, you look at the rates, 12, the adoption rate's even higher for 12 than it was for 11, and that one was pretty high. Yeah. So uh, you are pretty safe with Apple. Um, not so much with Android, but um, Apple, you're pretty safe with N minus one. Yeah, and the, yeah, Android's always, but I mean, I, I only just recently really started trying to push to do uh, Android 5 and above because I was targeting 4.4 for a long time and, and they're on 9 now. It's insane. Um, but the other thing that was interesting about the the upgrades to iOS 12 and the iPhone 10s and everything was how many apps, even not even titanium apps, but how many native apps still haven't updated themselves for the new screens. And what was interesting there was that there were apps that I'd installed like on or updated or were running on like day one of having the iPhone 10, which was last year. And those apps looked fine on the iPhone 10, and I believe that that's because they were using the launch screen storyboard type mode instead of the splash screens. So, you know, with those two modes, if you're using launch screen storyboard, your app will resize to the new device because it's not been restricted by having by being told what devices it supports by using the splash screen approach. So one nice way of future-proofing apps, especially titanium apps for future devices, is to use launch screen storyboard mode uh, for your splash screen, because you'll find that you know your apps will will resize correctly. Now that doesn't necessarily mean everything will work correctly because they haven't necessarily been rebuilt on a new SDK for iOS 12 or whatever. Uh, but you know they should. I know there's there were some big changes, wasn't it, from seven and eight to do with GPS stuff, um, and also there's some new stuff that's been introduced. I think in nine or ten, and we'll cover this in a in another episode when we talk about some geolocation stuff that I'm working on at the moment. Um, so there are sometimes situations where you have to ensure that your app is rebuilt with the latest SDKs. But I definitely had apps that I was in, I was running on the on the iPhone 10 that hadn't been updated specifically for the iPhone 10 and were running full screen. And because they were using UIKit, you know, it, the the home indicator was working correctly with tab groups and everything like that. So it was only the sort of custom apps that were doing their own custom tab groups that were causing problems with with stuff like that, which is which is a good moment to bring us on to another thing with um, coming up in eight, which I'm looking forward to. I know that there was a plan to try and put this in 7.5, but it got pushed back. Uh, a native navigation window and native bottom tabs for Android, which is going to be really cool in the SDK. That is huge. Yes. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I mean, because it's always been a pain in terms of, I know that we've had libraries that like Fokker wrote the, the UEXP library that allowed you to use a navigation window tag. So it was a redefined alloy tag that you could drop in once. And then if you used iOS, it would use a navigation window. And if you used Android, it would just default to showing the first window. And then any new windows that you opened would just open on top, you know, like a modal almost. Um, so, so it enabled you to have one XML file for both, which was nice. And obviously the bottom tabs problem has been solved in different ways. I mean, I've got my own uh, widgets and I've created my own sort of um, 
uh, alloy tag redefinitions that will give you will take your tab group tab tags and turn it into a bottom tab group on Android. But and it works and it works. You know, I've tried tested it on Pixels and it's great and it's fast and it it has some nice sort of features if I say so myself that you know if you tap the tabs it does the little pulse thing that Android does but but it's not doing it exactly the same way it's it's you know I've done it so that as you scroll it can hide the tabs and then as you scroll back it will bring them back up so lots of little things there that I noticed on a real and I did that by looking at a a real sort of tab group implementation or a navigation window implementation uh, sorry navigation bar implementation on other native android apps and seeing how that worked you know actually looking up the material design libraries and trying to emulate that through through my own code which worked and seemed to work nice and fast but it's still not purely you know it's still not as good and it's never going to be as good as a native component so i'm definitely looking forward to to seeing how this works and how much how much, I'm not saying how much it's going to be like iOS because they're different platforms, but how... Similar the API is. Yeah, how similar the API is and how little code we, we will need to have differing between iOS and Android uh, and the experience. Because you know what it's like. You're dealing with clients who, you know, they, nine times out of 10 when we get designs, it's always iPhone designs. So they'll give you an iPhone design. The tabs are at the bottom. You, sh- you fire across an Android version with the tabs at the top and they freak out because it doesn't look the same. So this is going to help with things like that. and the overall experience of using these apps, I think. I like that Google's addressed uh, with the Android design on their websites, going bringing in the, the bottom tab bar, uh, what was it, a couple of years ago. Yeah. And it's, it's taken a while with the material design stuff, but I think they've realized the importance of it too, to have it within reach, reachability as you have different size devices that you can have buttons that you can... Uh, easily reach or um, kind of reach (laughs) depending on the size of your device uh, with your thumb or other fingers at the bottom and just more easily navigate that. And so I'm, I'm really glad to get that and to have, yeah, we'll have cross platform native support for it. So that's, that's really big. The other nice thing that's recently to do with the releases that I noticed, I'm not sure I've noticed this before was that we had a 7.41, I think it was 7.4.1, or seven point, wait, I don't know if it was seven point four point zero or one, but what was interesting we, we has, is we had a seven point four point X release, but we also had a seven point five release. We had sort of it was a bit like Apple doing a new update to iOS twelve, you know, twelve point one, and then a beta of twelve point two or something. Which and I, I don't think I've seen that before. I don't know if you've seen that before. You know, typically Axway have done um, you know point releases, and then you go through the point releases, and they'll do an RC of the next big release like seven point five. Um, and you may see a, an update, you know, a point release update to a, a lower version. But it was interesting that we had like, you know, 7.4 and 7.5 at the same time. We had like a release candidate of the next version, which was really cool. So you could sort of, you could use the, the existing GA, but you could also test your apps with the release candidate. And it'd be nice, be interesting to see if they do that with 7. Point, uh, sorry, 8. So we might see a 7.5.1 GA or a 7. 5.2 GA, but then also see an 8RC, which would be really cool. So you could, al- you could almost, you know, use the current GA and be testing the future version at the same time, which is quite nice. Yeah, th- I'm glad they did that too, because then it makes a transition for people that might, they need to stay, for some reason, they need to stay on the 7.4X yeah. uh, branch for now to be able to get some fixes that they need without having to upgrade to a minor or major upgrade to be able to get it. So 
Yeah, I hadn't seen that before either. I think that was around the first of November that yeah. they kind of did that, and I, I like that. Yeah, it's very cool. I like that they're doing that too. And the other big news, uh, which was, I mean, luckily I've been able to use this for a while because I've been playing with it for a few weeks, a couple of months since it was first released or first released internally, is there is now a VS Code, Visual Studio Code extension for Titanium and for Accelerator, which is yes, uh, very which good, is, which is very nice. Um, I don't know what, I mean, I stopped using Studio, uh, well, maybe a couple of years ago. To, uh, I've been using Atom at least for a couple of years, maybe a bit longer. And I've been using Atom with, um, some of the extent, some of the uh, plugins and extensions that have been written, which were really nice. There were some that I really, really liked, like the one by Josh, which was the split view, which was really nice in Alloy. So you could sort of click a controller and it would bring up the other views, which was really cool. And then there was code completion um, plugins and things like that, which were really, really nice. I I was using Atom a lot when people were starting to use Visual Studio Code and going on about how great that was and how fast it was and everything. And I was quite happy with. I think I, tr- I think I tried to launch Visual Studio Code, but it was quite early at the time and there wasn't enough extension support for things like Titanium. So I was tending to, I just felt more comfortable in Atom. And it's that whole thing of just, you know, you're, you're more comfortable with the keystrokes that you're using to do formatting and all those sorts of things and the way the theming oh, yeah. works and all that sort of stuff. But the one criticism I did have and still do have of Atom was just that it would go through these weird modes of just slowing down to a crawl and you'd have to sort of kill it and restart it. And it was a real nightmare where, especially uh, especially if you opened a folder, like if you if you opened like a project folder, that's one thing. But if you opened a, a folder that contained a load of project folders, and so the Atom helper would suddenly start scanning all these subfolders and doing stuff, you could see it in your sort of CPU list that the Atom helper was suddenly doing 100% CPU. It seemed to be like pre-scanning all these folders for things. And that would really kill you know, my machine, even though I'm running a, a powerful MacBook Pro. And, and the one thing I noticed switching to studio was how completely different it was and how much faster and slicker it was. I know. I've, I I saw the same thing too with the the speed. I, sometimes I'm, I'm using Visual Studio Code as well, but not even the speed. But I'll sometimes I also have a lot of instances of VS Code running. Yes. And, yeah. and they all stay fast for me. Yeah. Um, I don't notice the slowdown on my machine a lot, and I have it with other IDEs too as well. But yeah, their the amount of uh, plugins and everything that they've released over the last couple of years is insane. I mean, it's the community is really growing there as well. It made it really easy to build to build plugins. Yeah, it's really really nice. And um, I actually found there was there was one time the one times I switched from from Atom. To, I mean, it's, it's lots of petty stuff. You know, it's things like the way fonts get rendered or the themes or you know what's just just the look and feel of the app uh, which is very petty but developers you know what it's like developers we like our certain fonts we like our certain way of working and the zooming and everything else but what's really nice about these products is that you can customize it you know you can you can go into these json configurations or whether it's typescript or whatever and you can change these settings and so i think it was one morning or one day i just thought let me just see what i can do with visual studio code to make it more comfortable for me to use like i do with atom and so, you know, it was finding the similar themes that I like using. I managed to work out that, you know, with, with all of these products, you can customize things like the file list font size. You can customize the tabs. You can customize the status bar. You can customize pretty much anything. So what I worked out was all the, um, all the styling that I needed to change to make it be more comfortable so I felt more like using Atom. And so I did all those changes, including key bindings and all those things so I could hit the same familiar key bindings 
and everything just worked out really well. So I then switched over to it and I was using a few titanium plugins that had been done. And then of course I found out that we were doing the Visual Studio Code extension, got the first versions of that installed. And then I was, yeah, then I was away because you've got, you know, really nice code completion. It's got some lovely features where, you know, I can be in a, I can be in a, a view and in, a, in an XML file, I can um, hit the command key and click on a class name and it will tell me, you know, which file that's in, which TSS file. And it was actually, it was expanding at one point. I think it still does this. It was expanding like a sub view within the XML. So my XML view would split and I'd see like a, almost like an inset that would show me a, a, the, the TSS from the app.tss file or whatever. And I could just quickly make a change there without leaving the file I was in. It was really, really, it's just really, really nice little things like that. So um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not using it to build at the moment. Uh, because I know at the moment it supports the Accelerator CLI. And I know there are plans to change that and to be able to run with the TI CLI for people who just use the open source version and also support the AppC CLI as well. So that th- those those plans are you know in the pipeline to change that. Um, but I do love all the code completion stuff. You know, it, it will um, look up all the devices and look up all your iOS and Android devices. And if you're using the AppC CLI right now, you know, you can hit the build button and it will build it and you'll get the console pop up and it will, it's almost like a mini version of Studio, but you've got what I believe is a lot more flexibility than Studio because you can add on all these other extensions that you want to use. Yeah, and it's actually a lot faster than Studio. I, I've had to use Studio before a lot and it even now, I mean, it's so heavy with, I mean, there's specific features for .NET that it's a very heavy and slower, but Visual Studio Code, wow, you can... I use it as my default text editor on my Mac. It just comes up so quick. Yeah. And, and the, there's another feature. I don't know. And there's not titanium related, related to our plugin at all, but there's another feature probably saved maybe for a separate episode to kind of talk about, but it's a VS uh, live share. Yes. Yeah. Allows you to not only do like pair programming kind of stuff, but you can do a class. Uh, you can have a whole bunch of people collaborating all at once on the same code base it actually downloads the code that you're sharing to their machine um, as you're editing it so that it's not just trying to look and share the uh, looking at the code. You actually get, as you're editing, a copy of the temporary in your temp folder, a copy of their code so that you can edit it along with other people. Really cool feature. Uh, more to talk about than we have time here, but uh, I, I'd love to see us doing uh, maybe a couple demos of showing building a titanium app using the live share kind of showing um, collaborating with uh, some of the other people in the community for a titanium app. Yeah. I mean, it opens up lots of possibilities where, um, you know, you can do view only broadcasts. So you can say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do like a, you know, I know that Renee's been doing some live streaming and stuff and those are great, but sometimes depending on what machine you're watching it on or the screen that you're watching it on, you're looking at effectively a screen of code that's being, you know, processed and spurted over the internet and then coming out the other end. And sometimes maybe you can't see what you, you know, the detail of what you want to see on the screen. Whereas with this, what we could have is you could have, yes, collaborative, but you could also just broadcast. So you can set it to view only mode. Um, people can then see within their version of studio what you're doing, like, you know, crystal clear as if they're actually editing those files themselves. So you can have like Visual Studio open and then you can have a separate window open, which might be running the video or the audio or whatever for the, the lesson or the, or the webcast or whatever. And they're actually seeing you making changes live in the actual editor, which is so cool. 
Um, but I, yeah, I love the idea of doing it as almost like a pair programming thing. I think that's going to be really interesting. I know that Atom introduced something similar before. I think it was before Visual Studio, but they're both doing it really well now. And, and yeah, the Visual Studio version looks really, really nice. It's a, it's a lovely product. It is. Yeah. And I don't have the experience with Atom as much like, like you do. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of similar things in Atom that for, and we also, as you mentioned, there's also a plugin for Atom that is out there and being used for titanium developers as well. Yeah. And the other, I know that, um, you know, one of the big things, uh, or there'll be, there's a couple of things that are obviously going to um, be missing for people that if they want to use Visual Studio that come from Studio, which is things like the Visual Designer and uh, debugging, because obviously you get the sort of live debugging within Studio. But I know that, you know, Visual Studio has its own debugging system that you can hook into. And I think I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be plans to see if we can hook into that, especially around some of the work that's been done using JS Core and debugging via the Safari uh, debugger, which you can do now. You know, if you're using JS, JS Core in iOS, you can actually um, configure your Safari browser in the develop menu to automatically fire up the debugger when it picks up an iOS simulator running using the JS Core engine. So you can be actually coding, you can actually add a breakpoint and it will fire up and come up. You can't edit the code, obviously, uh, but you can fire up breakpoints and see what bit of code is running, which is really, really nice. So I'm sure, you know, stuff like that is in the pipeline, which is going to be really, really interesting. But yeah, I'm really... Yeah. I'm loving it. And, you know, if you install the command line tools, so you can type code. So you just do code dot in a project folder and it pops up. And I'm a big, big CLI user now. You know, I use obviously a titanium CLI mainly, um, AppC CLI if I'm working on projects for clients um, or stuff that we're doing. Uh, the tools, I'm, I'm in the process of writing a few blog posts actually around some featured tools that I use. Some of which is a bit, it's a bit self-serving because some of them I wrote, <laughs> um, but and other ones that I've inherited from Fokker um, when he passed over a load of GitHub stuff. So it's going to look, it's going to look a bit of a pat on the back type blog post, but it's not all me. Um, but there's things like Tiny that he wrote, which is a TN. If you install it from NPM, which is a great tool. Uh, if you're using the CLI where you can, you can create really simple little recipes that I can, I can do like TN iPhone dash X, iPhone dash 10 effectively. And it will automatically, you know, fire up, fire it up in the iPhone 10 simulator with any specific iOS version I've specified or any other settings I've specified within that recipe. And it just makes things really, really nice. So if I did like TN ad hoc, it's going to do an ad hoc build, TN iTunes, TN device. Um, it just makes, it makes things really, really slick. And the only, the only downside of it when you're using the CLI is when you add these tools on top is that you get dependent on them. <laughs> so if you then go on another yes. machine, you go on another machine or a new machine, uh, or you're using a, you know, the AppSea CLI for some reason and you need to actually type in AppSea, then suddenly you forget what the actual command's in. And the number of times I've had to jump back to the documentation to reread what the, what the flags are because I've forgotten them. Yeah, because I have so many, I use a tiny CLI as well and have so many recipes, especially for keeping track of like switching between um, mobile provisioning profiles or developer certificates. Like if I'm building an app for one particular way, you can chain these recipes together so that yeah. I make sure that when I build it, oh, I'm building it for dev and make sure it gets the uh, development profile and for this particular certificate and run it with that app. And yeah, you get so dependent on it that when, when I go to a new machine, if I don't have it or I forgot to copy over my recipes from the other machine, then I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to have to look <laughs> up that. Yeah. So. Yeah, CLI stuff, It's the CLI can be, when you first sort of jump into it, it can be a bit frightening and a bit sort of weird to try and work out what's going on. But once you get used to it 
And I think the revelation for me was realizing that I could script it, you know, that I could do more things. So that's that's how I ended up writing things like the Tith library that I wrote so that I could I could run the command and it would automatically change the theme and um, use the use a TI app XML file that was in the theme folder and override the default one and do all kinds of stuff like that. And most of the projects now that I work on, you'll usually find some sort of bash script or some sort of script in the root that will be, you know, how to build it for dev, how to build it for live, how to um, how to build it for a device, how to build it for production, you know, specifying the provisioning. Because it's really easy to fall into that trap, which I do and I have done lots of times, where you sort of say, I want to do a, an ad hoc build. And then it pops up with the certificate and you pick the certificate and it pops up with the provisioning and you pick the provisioning and you sort of do it with muscle memory. And then you just realize, well, why am I, why am I still doing this every time? You know, why am I pressing these numbers instead of just having one line script that just picks the right profile, picks the right certificate, picks the right distribution folder and just spurts out a file. And you can even do things like with installer app, if you're using tools like that, where you can chain that together. So, you know, you can do one command from the, from the CLI and it will build the app in distribution mode, uh, in, ad, in ad hoc mode, it will generate the IPA and it will upload it to installer and can even, I think at one point I was playing around with installer CLI, which I think is a bit outdated now, I need to update it, where I got it working so I could get the Git history, so I could get the Git commits. for a, So what, would ha- what it actually happened when it worked, I need to check if it's still working, um, it was quite neat. So what it did was it would use a setting within your TI app XML of what the installer app, the, the app installer ID was, the installer app ID was for the app. It would uh, do the build, get the file out, and then it would look up on installer's API, that app, and find out when it was last updated. It would then get the Git commits from that date to the current date, and then put those into a text, into a text string, and then add those as the new build notes for when it uploads the IPA. And then it could automatically email the current testers for that app. So it was it was one of those things that was quite cool to do, but then when it came to actually using it in practice, you didn't really want to necessarily use it all the time because obviously we do, obviously we might do Git commits that are, you know, branch merging or, you know, formatting or weird, weird statements that people put in their little Git commits. Yeah, I did definitely want to review mine. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And all of those would suddenly appear in that release notes, you'll get a client going, I don't, I don't understand what merge branch master is. What is that? You know, it's like, but it was neat. It was, it was neat that it was possible that it could actually do it and go and get the history and, and do all that sort of stuff. It was quite cool. Yeah. I did something similar. I didn't use the Git commits, but just using a markdown and then working with like hockey app, uh, which is now yeah Microsoft app center, yeah. but to be able to autom- help automate the deploy for titanium apps, but it automation is great. Yeah. We, probably can do a whole episode on automation as well. Maybe we can consolidate some of the the stuff from the community that people would love to automate and just kind of highlight some of those because there's a lot of people in the community that are automating different things as well. Yeah, I know that some people uh, use Fastlane and TI Fastlane. I've, I started playing with some of those, but I guess uh, it's not that it's a bad thing. I think it's one of those things, it's down to the developer. So it's down to... It's down to you as a developer saying, right, I'm going to I'm gonna sort of go, f- in the next project I'm going to do, I'm going to use Fastlane and I'm going to use TI Fastlane and I'm going to go for it. And, and that just needs a little bit of investment of time from, from yourself to say, right, let's go and set this up properly. Because from what I've seen of the Fastlane stuff, it's really, really cool, but it does take some preparation. You know, you've got to, you've got to have folders and things where your screenshots go and where your notes go and some configuration files for the app connect or iTunes connect as it used to be called configuration. 
And that's, you know, it's not the end of the world. It's just a little bit of effort. And of course, once you've done it the first time, it's going to be much easier to do the next time. And maybe you even write some tools to help you do that in future. So it's, 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 but it's one of those things of, it's that procrastination part of me that I never get around to doing it because I'm usually in such a hurry that I just want to get it done. So I'll just create the entries myself and just get on with it. But I really want to take some time to step back and actually go, no, I'm going to do this and, and actually find out how good this can be for me going forward. Yeah. And a lot of it's too, what you want to try and accomplish. Cause I know in the, one of the last apps that I had to push the app store for Android and iOS, we'd get, uh, there was a, a firm that would do the, the, um, IPA file and, uh, the, and the, both the iOS and the Android file, but they were signed and they came to us. Well, we need to re-sign them. Yeah. Change the version and re-sign it then with our certificate and, Using Fastlane, it was dead simple. So it, it would um, expand the APK, um, change the version. Uh, re, um, That's nice. Zip it, zip it back up, re-sign it with our certificate. But the same with the Apple one as well. So we could easily re-sign that, change some stuff around, and re-sign it with our certificate. So it didn't matter that we got it from somewhere else. and that So we didn't have to give out um, our certificate to some other place or to our Apple account, which is the typical process you would do. We just like, just give us the files and I'll make sure that they get an app store. And it worked out with Fastlane automation. It worked out really well. Yeah. I had to do that with a client a while ago and it was one of those revelations where there's probably many people out there that still don't realize this is the case that they always think, you know, you have to add me into your iOS account, or I need your login details to be able to, to complete this. But there are, especially when you're dealing with some corporates, you know, they're not going to do that. They're not going to add you in as anything other than a, a user, which means you really can't do much. Um, and they're definitely not going to give you the account details. And, and that was when I discovered this was for a, a big car company that I wrote an expenses app for. And they needed to, they wanted to sign it with their enterprise account um, certificate um, and provisioning profile. And I discovered this app that I, I downloaded. It wasn't Fastlane. I don't think Fastlane was around at the time. But it was a little desktop app for the iPhone, uh, for Mac OS. I can't remember what it's called now, but I'll see if I can dig it out and put it in the notes. Uh, and it basically let you pick an IPA or pick an archive, and it would then take care of it. So you would pick the archive or the IPA file. You would pick uh, the new version profile, the certificate, whatever, and it would just do it, resign it, spurt out a new version. I could send that to the client, and that's it. They, they were ready to go. They could publish that straight onto their enterprise store, and people could download and start using it. It was awesome. And I didn't realize Fastlane did that, but that's 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 awesome that it can do that. So it's definitely something I want to take a bit of time out and, and try. The other thing is um, CI stuff. I mean, I don't do, I haven't played enough with continuous integration stuff. And I know that some clients I've worked for have got some really nice setups where, you know, you can, um, there's one client in the States I do a little bit of work for. And, you know, you'll do a change. You'll uh, commit to, um, commit to the, the branch or GitHub. And as soon as you've committed and pushed it up, their CI server will do a build. And it will squirt a build out on the server using Titanium and then comes back with any issues, you know, comes back with any problems with the build, anything that didn't. I mean, it's, you know, effectively, it's not running the app. It's not going to run the app and run through any smoke tests or anything. It's really just building the app and making sure that it builds correctly you know, and an IPA can be generated. Um, but it will it will come back with any little errors that it finds and it will do things. They've got like some server side lint checking and things going on. So it will do things like coming back as a failure to say that, you know, you've defined a variable and haven't used it or um, you've you've done something that you shouldn't have done in the code, which is quite cool. Uh, and they and they use some plug-in scripts as well 
uh, for the command line so that uh, for the terminal so that when you were building the app it would stop the build if it found out that you were not declaring something properly or not doing something properly which is which is really nice because it saves you that whole you know build run on simulator or run a device launch the app log in something fails you know it's already told you in advance which is really cool um, so I, I definitely want to play around with more of that stuff and, and, and definitely I've done unit testing in the past, but I want to do more of that as well. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear. I mean, I've used Jenkins and uh, VSDS, which is now Azure DevOps, I think, but uh, to do some of the CI, but I know there's a lot of other ones out there people have used uh, with Titanium. So I'd be curious to hear what, what some of the other people in the community are using as well and get some insight on what they're doing. Yeah, and I want to do some, especially on the unit testing stuff, I want to do some stuff around some of the libraries I've written, like Resty, to sort of add some testing capability in there. So you can almost you can almost do it, because I hit the same problem that other people hit sometimes, even with the stuff I write for myself. You know, I'll be using an API, I'm doing something at the moment with an app playing with Dropbox API using Resty configuration. And I'll hit issues where I've specified the wrong, uh, whether I've specified post instead of get, or I've done something wrong in my config, or I'm, I'm just not implementing it correctly. And it would be nice to be able to almost have, uh, to be able to create the config and then almost create like a test config within that. And then from the command line, I could run something that would, without necessarily running the full app, would take the resty configuration and sort of hit the API using HTTP requests to just make sure the API is returning stuff correctly. So little things like that would be really neat because, you know, that's a time saver, but it's just finding the time to do this stuff. Too many things to do, too little time. Exactly, which yep. is uh, almost the case with this episode as it comes up to an hour. Yep. So uh, it might be a good time for us to uh, close it off and then we can we can talk about some other stuff in the next episode, including geolocation, um, building app at the moment that's got some good geolocation stuff going on. And it's been a while since I've not, not done geolocation, but a while since I've had to do specific things with it. And it's just interesting about things like battery considerations and performance. And there's a few things that I've learned there that might be interesting to talk about. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting topics when it comes to that. Cool. Well, Brenton, welcome back. Thanks for coming on. And we'll see you all again in, or we'll talk to you all again probably in a couple of weeks. Great. Looking forward to it.